God's Word in 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 24, says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Samaria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities which they had lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Cush made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartark, and the Sevarvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord, and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served other gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes, and the rules, and the law, and the commandments that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So the nations feared the Lord, and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Well, my parents own the full collection of Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip by Bill Watterson, and so whenever we go down to their house, we pull them out and laugh at the various ones. One time, Calvin, the six-year-old little boy in the story, enters the living room and says to his dad, Dad! Your polls took a big dive this week. Your overall dad performance rating was especially low. See, right about yesterday, your popularity went down the tubes. His dad then burst out, Calvin, you didn't get dessert yesterday because you flooded the house. A nonplussed Calvin walks away saying, I'd suggest a new line of work, dad. Another time, Calvin enters and says, Well, dad, your polls are real high this week. His dad says, Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Calvin says, well, yes, and with a little push, those poles could reach a record high. His dad says, nice try, Calvin. Go help your mom with the dishes.
To which Calvin says, ooh, dad, suicide, political suicide, dad, ooh, ooh. Well, Calvin and Hobbes has enduring value because of the humor that Watterson brings, and he deals with issues that are not far off from reality. The reality is that many people, often in politics, care too much about the polls. Yet Watterson points out the insanity of that by making us consider another facet of life, parenting. An area where if the parents do what they do based on what will make them popular with their children, they will be doomed. It's Mother's Day, and good mothers know you do what's best for your children, not what is immediately enjoyable. They don't want to go to bed. They don't want to eat their vegetables. They don't want to do lots of things. But a good mom knows, I know what's better for you, and so you're going to do this. In essence, what we're talking about here is, who are we trying to please? You know, the Bible talks about this quite often, but it talks about it in language we don't often use. Or, the language we use is different than the way the Bible uses it. The way the Bible talks about this is, do we fear God, or do we fear man? And that's really what our passage before us is all about. And we'll see three things. First, the consequences of not fearing the Lord. Then the meaning of fearing the Lord. And lastly, the freedom of fearing the Lord. If you're were with us before when we looked at this, we saw that Israel was just taken into exile. If you look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 17, we realize there was no confusion as to why this happened. It reads, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and had feared other gods. You know, this was not God being rash, or capricious, or unjust, for rather, for 200 years, God has sent prophets and other people to warn them to turn back to God. Look at verses 13 and 14, where it says, The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Thus, God, after being very patient, we saw that God brought judgment upon them, as we read, because they feared other gods. Now in our passage before us today, 11 times the author mentions fear. Do you fear the Lord or do you fear other gods? And he's driving home the centrality of fearing God in our life. You know, this is living out an example of the principle stated in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. Or Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. And so this passage is meant to give us the fountain of life. And let's see what we learn from it. Well, first, it begins with the king of Assyria sending people back into Samaria. So he'd conquered the Samaritans, the Israelites who lived there. He took them out of the land, but they didn't leave the land desolate. He sent other nations back to Israel. And once they get there, something horrible happens. They don't fear the God of the land, as they say. And so God sends lions in who begin to harm them. Well, this gets reported back to the king of Assyria. So he says, oh, 
what we must do is send one of their prophets, one of their priests back to help them. And this sounds very promising till we remember what are the prophets and priests of Israel like? Well, we don't have to see very long because he chooses his station where he's going to teach from Bethel. Bethel is the very place where Jeroboam began the idolatrous worship of Israel that ended up being their downfall. Not only that, once he's there, he begins to teach them the fear of the Lord. And I put that in quotes on purpose, because I think to understand this passage, when you read verses 28 through 33, anytime it talks about them fearing the Lord, you should put that in quotes, almost sarcasm, because this fear of the Lord is then followed right after it by them worshiping other gods. This is not the fear of the Lord that the Bible calls us to. That's why verse 33 can say, so they feared the Lord. And then verse 34 can go right after that and say, they did not fear the Lord. It's not because the author's confused and can't remember what he said from one verse to the next. He's painting two types of fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord is what the priests who had come back thought they should do. Oh yeah, you should worship the Lord, worship Yahweh, and you can worship other gods. It's what's called synchristic religion, mixing the worship of God with other things. And this is not just something that happened years ago. It happens today. In 1836, nine Presbyterian pastors worked together to form a seminary in New York City. They loved God. They believed the Bible to be true, inspired, and inerrant. And for many years, it was a great seminary. This last year, the seminary had a special service. In this service, they announced, Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. And at the end, they asked, what did you confess to the plants in your life today? Hopefully the answer is nothing, because we are not to worship or confess to plants. We're to worship and confess God, the maker of all plants. And they're not shy or secretive. On the front page about their seminary, it says, our seminary embraces the richness of other faith traditions. Well, that's what is going on right here in 2 Kings 17. All the richness of the world, what they have to offer. And yet God condemns them for this. Now imagine if the seminary I've mentioned a couple times, one of their professors was sent here to teach us faithfulness about God. And then you have the picture of what's going on in 2 Kings 17, because that's the type of priest who's being sent to instruct them so that they might fear the Lord. But as you can tell from verses 34 and on, this is clearly condemned. It lays out example after example, verse after verse, how God said, you shall fear and serve me alone. You shall not fear or serve other idols. Thus, the chapter ends by saying that they don't follow God's rules, laws, or commandments, and they do so mixing the fear of the Lord with the worship of other gods until this day. And of course, meaning until this day, the day of it being written, not necessarily until the day any person might read it. And yet this can seem a little confusing. We already mentioned, we tried to explain it, but how can it say in verse 33, they fear the Lord, in verse 34, they didn't fear the Lord? 
Well, because often when the Bible talks about ways we should relate to God, it notes that you, there can be a good and a bad aspect of that. Let's look at another example. Often people will say things like, you know what matters is faith. It doesn't really matter what you believe. It just matters that you believe. And yet what does Jesus say about that? Well, Jesus shows us that there is a type of faith that doesn't save. For example, John 12, 42 through 43, it says, Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So here there's this type of faith, this faith that they believe who Jesus is, but they won't publicly confess it. And Jesus is clear of what he thinks about this faith. Luke 12, 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before the men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, Jesus is saying, if your faith, and I put that in quotes, is the type of faith that is only private, that will never be honest and confess before others, that is not the type of faith that saves. So there is good faith and there's bad faith, but faith in and of itself is not good. Just like here, there's good fear of the Lord and there's bad fear of the Lord. Or another example, the book of James, he talks about a faith, but a faith that when it sees people in need, doesn't do anything about it. And so he writes, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And thus the Bible often warns of a great tragedy. The tragedy that people are so close to knowing God, but they are so far. They're religious. They go to church, they pray. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Oh yes, I'm a Christian. But they don't actually trust the Lord. They don't actually follow Him. And perhaps this is you. You know the right words and phrases. When you're here with Christians, you say the right things. But inside, your greatest joy is anything but God. Your greatest fear is anything but what the Lord will say. Second Kings 17, Jesus, James, they're all warning us that you can have the appearance of godliness while in fact not knowing God. Do you know about God or do you actually know Him? There's a world of difference in an eternity that flows from it. Well, the story before us here is tragically ironic because the Israelites, they were kicked out of the land because they didn't fear the Lord. And then these other nations come in and when they see suffering, they try to fear the Lord. They're just instructed wrongly by the people of Israel. And yet we keep using this phrase, fearing the Lord. What does it even mean? Well, to understand, let's flip back to Exodus chapter 20. Verses 18 through 21. Exodus chapter 20, 18 through 21. This is the story of when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. And right before this, in chapter 19, the Lord told them to stand back. And then there was great lightning, powerful manifestations of thunder. The earth shook. He then gives... The commandments, and we read in Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Now, when all the people 
saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. They're here, they've heard God speak. That's interesting, a lot of people say, Oh, I wish God would speak to me. And yet, when God has come and spoken, the people fall in fear. They come to hear God speak, and they say, we don't want you to come directly to us, God. We want a mediator. We want someone to come in between you and us. And then that mediator, Moses says to them, do not fear. And that's a very important phrase. It's actually the most repeated command in the Bible. Do not fear. But notice, he says, do not fear. And God doesn't want you to fear. So what? It's in the middle of verse 20. That the fear of God may be before you. In other words, he is again showing there's a wrong type of fear. That's the fear of anything in the creation. And there's a right type of fear. The fear of the creator. Thus, as we talk about fearing the Lord, we have to realize at the very beginning, there are two types of fear. The issue is not fear, but it is the object of what you fear, how much you fear it. And this is important because over and over we're told as a society, fear is bad. We might listen to the seemingly wise Yoda. Fear leads to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Well, I don't want to suffer. You probably don't want to suffer either. So what does he say? Well, don't fear anything. And yet that's not what God tells us. Yes, our fears can cripple us, and we can fear things we shouldn't, but fear is a healthy response. If you're outside and you see a ball going to the street and a toddler chasing it, and you hear a car roaring down the street, you don't go, eh, I'm not a fearful type of person. You know, we'll see what happens. You fear, and so you run and stop the child. There is a healthy fear that causes us to do things. And the Bible is presenting to us this two-sided approach to fear in fearing God. Thus, the Bible does tell us not to fear, but it also tells us in the Old and New Testament to fear God. Earlier, Frankie read for us Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, and there it talked about this very passage. It talked about how the Israelites came and they were afraid. And now we don't come through this mountain, we come through Mount Zion. That's where Jesus was sacrificed. It's saying we come through Jesus and we come through joyful celebration. And that's what a lot of Christians say. Oh, yes, we don't want to fear God. We want to come in joy and celebration. And that's true. We don't just come through the human mediator, Moses. We come through the God-man, the mediator, Jesus Christ. We're perfectly brought in, and so we do come confidently, joyfully before the Lord. Yet, just because we can come confidently and joyfully doesn't mean we come casually or flippantly. Thus, Hebrews 12 concluded with these words, verses 28 through 29. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire even after pointing out how we do come to God in joy 
The New Testament still says we must come to God with fear, with reverence and awe. Yes, in Christ, God calls us to come joyfully and boldly. But He is still our Creator. Jesus still had to die for that right, and so we come with respect. So there is a right reverence. There is a right awe. There is a right way we should respect God. And that is really seen in two big things, in our attitudes and in our actions. And let's talk about our attitudes first. Ed Welch, several years ago, wrote an excellent book, When People Are Big and God is Small. And in that, he describes the ranges of the attitude we have towards God. You know, on one end of this spectrum of the attitudes we have before God is the attitude we have when we only know our sin, when we don't know of Christ. That's Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do? They went and hid. They were in dread. And if we don't have a mediator to go between us and God, then we should rightly have terror and dread because we will have to give an account to the living God. And yet there's a spectrum because on the other end, when we come to know God, not just as judge, but as Father who loves us and has sent His Son to die, we move along this spectrum so we're no longer known to have fear and dread, but we now give way to astonishment. Would you love us like that? Awe, that you're so holy that you demanded your Son's sacrifice. Reverence, that we come to you with respect, with trust and worship. And so there's this spectrum of attitudes that we have. And if you had good fathers, you understand this idea that fear of someone can be good. My father was very good, and he loved me, and because of that, 99% of the days he came home, I longed for him to come home. But there was 1% where I was in terror. Not because he didn't love me, but because he did love me, and my mom had said, Dad will take care of that when he comes home. And I knew that because my dad loved me, he was going to get to the seat of the situation. And I didn't fear that he would harm me, but I knew he loved me and that he would do what's best. And when I'm living in sin, in rebellion against my authorities, there's a healthy fear. But not because he was anyway malicious. In the same way with God, because we know he's just, we know he'll discipline his children. We have a respect and fear, but we also know his love. So most of the time, we live in that worship, delight, reverence. But when we sin, we should rightly be afraid on the other end of the spectrum till we cling to Christ for forgiveness again. Yet the fear of God is not just a set of attitudes we have. It also leads to actions. If we fear God, it'll manifest itself in us being unwilling to do certain things and being willing to do certain things. Thus, in Exodus 1, Pharaoh commands the Egyptian midwives to put the Hebrew boys to death. And yet, it tells us, Hebrews, sorry, Exodus 1.17, that since they feared God, they would not put the boys to death. Knowing that God is perfectly just and loving creator who hates sin, it led them even to risk their lives because their life was not as worthy as honoring God. Fear of God also leads us not to mistreat those who we could 
get away with harming. Leviticus 19.14 is an interesting verse. It says, you shall not curse the deaf. Now, it's interesting. The deaf person is not going to hear you say that. Or put a stumbling block before the blind. Well, they're not going to see you're supposedly getting away with this. But the contrast is you shall fear your God. They may not hear what you're saying. They may not be able to see it. But God does. And living in light of Him leads us to treat every one of His image bearers with respect and dignity. You know, Psalm 34 gives us five great snapshots of what it means to fear God. Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Well, that's what we know. What does it mean to fear the Lord? And then he gives us five ways that we fear the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So how do you know if you fear the Lord? Well, he gave five things. First, you keep your tongue from evil. If you fear God, then you avoid gossip and backbiting or crude and coarse jesting. If you fear God, then we keep our lips from speaking deceit. We don't shade the truth. Or exaggerate to look better or flatter to hope to gain people's approval. Third, if we fear the Lord, we turn away from evil. We don't indulge in what God hates. Or we don't flock to watch and laugh or enjoy people doing what God hates. Fourth, if we fear God, we do good. You know, fearing God is not just avoiding certain bad things, which we should do. It's also positively doing good things. It's the pursuit of blessing others. It's wanting to serve rather than to be served. To honor rather than to be honored. To be a blessing to put others more important than ourselves. And fifth and lastly, Psalm 34 tells us, the one who fears God will seek and pursue peace. You know, I know lots of people who seek revenge. They seek retaliation. But if we fear God, if we want to be like Him, we seek peace. As far as it depends on us, we live at peace with all men. Thus, we're slow to take offense. We're quick to forgive and quick to confess our sins when we know of them. Thus, to fear God is not some abstract concept, but rather is seen in concrete actions and lifestyle. If you know Psalm 34, you know I actually left out the verse in between. Verse 12, right before it gave the five things, says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In other words, if you fear the Lord, it'll bless your life. So there's an attitude that fears the Lord, and that leads to action. And this is so different than the caricature people put on fearing God as though that means we cower and never want to come before him it's not just terror but a range of meanings leading even to worship love and trust or another way of saying all this is that fearing God means that he is first in our life or as one of my professors said that it is treating God as the central fact of your existence so what about you do your attitudes and actions show that you fear God? Do you have a respect for Him? Do you rightly tremble when you have a loose tongue, when you pursue evil? 
when you seek revenge. You go, ah, God forgives. What's the big deal? We're all sinners anyways. Or do you tremble? My Savior had to die for those things that I just indulged in. Well, if we know the fear of the Lord, it will bless us. And it will bless us because it will free us. And that's our last point. If you'd flip over just a couple books, few books, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we'll look at some verses there in a minute. 1 Samuel 13, where we'll look at the freedom of fearing the Lord. But before that, we'll note that Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If we care most about what people think, we are going to be enslaved by them. Now the word most is important because we should care what people think. If I love you, then I'm going to care what you want to have happen. But that's not going to be primary in life. That's secondary to what God wants. Hebrews 2.15 also shows that our fear, what we fear most, enslaves us. There are the authors explaining how Jesus came to conquer death and the devil. And he writes, And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, the point the Bible makes is that the things that we fear the most, in this case, death, Hebrews 2.14, they hold us in captivity because we're always living in light of it. The wonderful truth is Jesus came to liberate us. He came to set us free. And so let's look at two categories of freedom we can have when we turn to see God as the most important aspect of our life. Or in other words, we fear him. First, we can have freedom from people and then unrealistic goals. We see freedom from people in 1 Samuel 13. The story is of the first king of Israel, King Saul. And here we have a story where Israel's perennial enemy, the Philistines have gathered, gathered a massive force, a great army, and the Israelites have gathered a very small band of soldiers. And as is natural, the Israelites are afraid. That is, again, not necessarily wrong. The issue is, what are they going to do? If you have something before you that is fearful, there is a healthy response. But like our anxieties, we cast them upon the Lord and he cares for us. But notice what Saul does. 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8, it says, He, Saul, waited seven days, the time pointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered themselves at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. For then the Lord, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So as the leader of Israel, as the commander of the army, when Saul saw his troops starting to leave, should he have feared? Yes. When he saw that the Philistines had a larger army, should he have feared? Yes, there's an appropriate response. However, he allowed those fears to grow so that they became greater than obeying God. They grew larger than his fear of God. So Saul, in a seemingly noble task, said, Well, Samuel's not here. I'll just do the sacrifices myself. And yet, if obeying God means you have to disobey him, you're not actually obeying God. Fearing God, obeying God, would not have made Saul's life easier in the moment as he sees another Israelite soldier slip away. It would have been more dreadful. But it would have been the place of safety. You know, if we set our path on making what God wants first and foremost, it doesn't always make life easier, but it'll always be pleasing to God. And these aren't abstract ideas. This affects us even today. Some of you may know that in the last few weeks, some recorded conversations came out where one of our nation's political leaders said in private, this should happen. This is the moral thing that should be done. And then, over the course of several weeks, they did the exact opposite. And when it came out, they didn't say, you know, really, I just changed my opinion. They started to say, oh, I never said that. No, 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 that's not what I believed. But it's recorded. Well, why? Well, opinion polls. Public opinion had changed, and what I think doesn't matter as long as I can keep my power, keep my position. And we, sadly, are driven more by what do these people think then what does god think but it's not just kings like in first samuel or politicians each of us has times when a joke is told a comment is made behaviors are expected and we know what god wants but we fear well they're gonna call me puritanical they're gonna call me a prude they're gonna say i'm hateful if i don't go along and we all feel these pressures what? You're a virgin? <laughs> Why would you do that? What? What do you mean you're not going to go get drunk with us tonight? Were you some kind of like Jesus freak or something? <laughs> Who cares? Come on, have a good time with us. What's the big deal? Isn't God going to forgive anyways? And the reality is those are real painful pressures. And we feel them. And the judgment exists for a time. And it can even go on for years, but it is always a finite amount of time. God's judgment will be infinite and last for eternity. Thus let, our, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. When we live in the fear of God, we're freed from the opinions of people. Yes, they may mock us, but what we care about most is what God says. But not only are we freed from people, we're also freed from unrealistic goals in our life if we live in the fear of the Lord, if we live with Him being the central aspect of our existence. You know, what is God's ultimate goal for your life? What does He ultimately want from you? Well, it's really quite simple to understand, though it is quite hard to live out since we're sinners. 
It's quite simple. He wants you to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Very hard to do because we're sinners, but very easy to understand. And if that's the focus and goal of our life, then we're living in the light of God and we're living in the fear of God. However, that goal has nothing to do with what most of us crave, that most of us really want. I've shared this illustration before, but it's, I think it's quite poignant, so let me share it again. I was a math teacher for six years, and at one time I had this one student who just really could not grasp the concepts. I could literally sit there and do ten examples in a row, and then we do an eleventh one, and I would give the same problem and change the number, and she would start and then say, I don't know what to do. She just couldn't get it. And maybe you've been in that place. Maybe you've been that student where you just don't get it. And then you know what we say to ourselves? What she would say? I'm worthless. I'm so stupid. I don't amount for anything. And I would say to her, Marta, when you're not doing math and you're sitting there doodling, you can draw the most incredible pictures. And they were. When I doodle, I can't make a stick figure look good. God gave you artistic abilities, and he didn't give you math abilities. We both recognize that. God gave me math abilities, and he gave me no artistic abilities. And you know what that matters? Nothing. It doesn't matter. Because what is God's goal for your life? Do you love him? Do you love others? It doesn't matter if you're good at math or good at art or good at neither. You can use whatever skills or lack of skills to love God and love others. And the same message applies to us in so many areas of life where we have unrealistic goals. Some of us look at our bodies and wish we look like whatever we see on a screen and we feel worthless. Some of us can't tell the difference between a screw or a nail and we're asked to fix a light bulb and we're like, I don't know. And we feel worthless. Some of us know what we think and then as soon as we open our mouth, everything incoherent comes out. And we feel worthless. Some of us couldn't kick, throw, or jump to save our life. And we feel worthless. And you know what? None of that ultimately matters. I'm not saying it's irrelevant or that you shouldn't try to improve. Yet if you make that the most important part of your life, this is the central fact of my existence. I have to fill in the blank with anything but living for God. You're either going to become very proud, because you can do it, or you're going to get very defeated. I'm worthless. I have no meaning. But if we live in the light of God, if we fear God, then we are oriented to what really matters in life, and we are freed to live a life of joys. You know, God's goal is not that you achieve a certain body shape, that you have handyman skills, that you have speaking abilities, or you have athletic prowess. Rather, do you use what God has given you to love Him and love others. And the point is, whenever our life is reoriented to what really matters, we will be freed and we will enjoy it more. So the issue before us today is not what do we say, but how do we live? Here in 2 Kings 17, they said all the right things. They even got a priest to teach them. Oh, we can say, we fear God. But they didn't actually live in light of the fear of the Lord. In John's Gospel, we saw people who said they believed, but they wouldn't actually follow Christ. 
And so, not what do you profess only with your lips, but what are you living in your life? The story is told of an accomplished young pianist making his concert debut at Carnegie Hall. His playing was magnificent, and after he departed the stage, the audience erupted in cheers. The stage manager urged him, they want you to go out, go out and play again, play an encore. But the young man refused. The stage manager replied, look out the curtains, they're standing, they're cheering, they want you to go out and play again. And the pianist said, do you see an old man in the top left in the balcony? The manager peered out and said, yes, I see him. The pianist said, that man is seated. I will not give an encore until he stands and cheers. Exasperated, the manager said, what, a whole crowd's cheering for you and one old person and you won't give an encore? And he said, that old man is my piano teacher. Only when he stands will I take an encore. You can have everyone on this earth applauding you, giving your life a standing ovation, but only one person matters. Is God standing in applause, or is he seated, saying that your life is not what he wants it to be? May God give us the wisdom and fear of the Lord to understand and live that out. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may these not just be words, but may all of us, myself included, Take this to heart. Lord, there's so many things that are seeking our attention, trying to give us, give our life to them. And yet there's only one thing that ultimately matters, and that's you. Lord, would you give us a healthy and right fear of you so that you might be honored and that our lives might be fully enjoyable. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.